turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, uh, and Miss Jen Lewis is bringing the reading of the Word today. 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 7 through 10. Jen? Beloved, let us love one another, for the love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I don't know about you, but uh, this is a very familiar, oft-quoted, oft-used against one another, even at times, passage. But perhaps even in hearing about Grief Share this morning and the news over the weekend of hundreds of miles of destruction, you find your mind and your heart elsewhere. So would you just indulge me for a moment that uh, I might pray pastorally for not only friends, loved ones, uh, maybe even family that is within the tornado's destructive path in in the middle of our country, but that I'd pray for us as well, that we might be able to know how to best serve and cast our cares on the Lord. Can we pray together? Lord, we come to you this morning gathered here together, but our minds are easily found elsewhere. So Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge our need for you this morning. Calm our minds. Here we find ourselves in the midst of this season that somehow is simultaneously slow as it seems as molasses and faster than sugar in the bloodstream of a five-year-old. And that's the tension we live in. It's the news that is breaking as we wake on Saturday mornings. It's the heartache and grief of another Christmas without. So we find ourselves just acknowledging at the beginning, we need you to know how we need you. We're dependent to know how to cast ourselves on your mercy. We are people who are fragile and frail and finite, and so we look and we cry out to the infinite God. Help us this morning. Lord, we're reminded in your word in 1 Peter 5 that we can cast all of our cares on to you, and that's not just an ability to kind of offload, but it it actually reminds us of something very near and dear to the heart of the gospel. We cast all of our cares on you. Why? Because you care for us. And so this morning, we have a lot on our hearts and minds we want to offload to you. But in doing so, we don't want that to be displaced by other things of the world, other trappings of the season, other fleeting moments of happiness. We cast all of our cares onto you so that we can receive you. And so, Holy Spirit, help us to receive this morning. For loved ones, friends, brothers, sisters, family, who are this morning grieving the loss Loss that is still uncalculated across hundreds of miles. 
Lord, we grieve with them. I know families in this church that have family in that area. Lord, thank you for the testimonies we've heard so far of hearing from them or simple things as loss of power. But there is more than loss of power happening in the midst of our nation right now. For those who are with you, we rejoice with them because to die is to gain. For those who are not, we are reminded of the brevity of life. So our hearts go out. But our hearts go out not only to the infinite God, but to the God who is everywhere at all times. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, be where we cannot be now. Comfort, bind up, minister through your grace. Lord, for churches gathering this morning on the property where their church buildings once stood, let us be reminded that the church is not a building or a facility. It is a people gathered, and may they be able to rejoice in your goodness this morning and then minister to their community out of the ministry that they receive. God, our hearts are burdened, but you are not unaware. And so you give us these mechanisms through prayer to be able to just speak with you plainly about what's going on in our heart as you minister directly to us by bringing back the things that we recall about who you are in Scripture. And so, Lord, today as our eyes fall to these words in 1 John 4, minister to our hearts as well. It seems selfish to ask in the midst of so much trial and trauma going on in our nation, and yet we find ourselves in need of you all the more. Minister to our hearts as well, so that we can love others in the same way that we have received divine love. There's only one name powerful enough for us to be able to approach your throne of grace. There's only one name that gives us the ability to enter into the presence of perfection, even in the midst of our imperfections, and that's the name of Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray this morning. It's through the inspiration in our hearts and our minds of the Holy Spirit that we even cry out and say, Abba, Father, be near. Knowing that in this season... As we look to Emmanuel, as we look to God with us, this is not merely a point in time in history that we look back to. It is a present reality for the believer. So Holy Spirit, lead our thoughts and our hearts through the rest of this service. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, John, in 1 John, loves to talk about love. He loves to talk about love. And and we actually, as people, have, I think, grown accustomed to using the word love more and more. And I I am not here to say that I don't think that that's genuine. There are people, I, I have been learning, illustration coming to mind in real time, right? dangerous this early in the sermon. I was reminded of a few years ago when I was on the phone with Danny for some reason, and he just, we're kind of going through the the typical closing of a phone conversation. He just says, I love you. And and it was that weird moment, right, where it was almost like, almost like I was going to be that person that just goes, thank you. 
right? Like that awkward, that awkward thing. I actually have a family member that happened to where it was like, thank you. Oh, that's awkward. Thanks much. That, that made it better. Me putting myself out there like that. But we have those moments, right, where you're like, there was a genuineness in what he was communicating to me in that moment. And I just realized, like, why, why am I hesitant to reciprocate love? And it's not because there was something wrong between Danny and I or anything like that. It was, there was just something so deep and meaningful about him just saying, I love you. And you know what it did? It kind of challenged this thought in me where I was like, gosh, I, that was actually really encouraging, I want to grow to where I can start to tell people that I love them like that and and mean it so genuinely. But I think that we've also grown accustomed to using this word for all kinds of things from the genuine depth of relationship to that taco stand. Let, Let me give you an example. Like, I love Sunday afternoon naps to football. Now, I enjoy the game of football, and not just because my bucks are doing great right now. Listen, I endured a lot of years of garbage football from that team. I'm all right to brag on that a little bit right now. That's probably what trained me to sleep through it. And if you want to know how much I love it, why don't you wake me up in the middle of that nap? I'll let you know how much I love that nap. So we can use this word in this amazing bandwidth, right? But in the midst of using that word to apply to all kinds of things like relationships, tacos, Sunday afternoon football naps, it starts to lose a bit of its meaning, doesn't it? It starts to lose a little bit of its meaning. So where is it that we look to learn what love is? Yesterday morning, the men in the church were gathered. Eddie did just a wonderful job leading this discussion. The men of the church were gathered for our monthly Saturday morning meeting, and we were looking at the subject of love, and I was listening intently like, what points don't I have to make tomorrow that Eddie's going to make now? And it's just wonderful how God seems to be setting us up as a church. He wants to speak to us as a people that says something about the way that we both receive the love of God as well as the way that we express the love of God through our very lives. We get to participate in that, and that's what Eddie was leading the men through yesterday. Tonight, as pastors and deacons, we'll be gathering to celebrate Christmas together. And we're going to have a great time out with this team. I love being together with this team. See how easy it is to say I love being together with this team. We'll have a great time out. We'll have dinner together. It's going to be rich and meaningful experience. We're going to experience the goodness of God through relationships and community together. Because that's part of how he designed us in his love. To experience community like that. But even tonight, even in the weeks ahead amongst my own family, amongst friends, co-workers, the fullest example, the fullest definition of love can be lacking. And I don't have to look anywhere beyond myself for that to be true. If we were to look to each other, if you look at even the healthiest of the relationships that you know here on earth right now, whether it's one that you are in or one that you have the opportunity to observe, I think that we can all say that the best definition of love would still be wanting. Now, there are various forms of love. There's intimate forms of love. There's familiar, familial forms of love. There's brotherly forms of love that, that unites us together as believers in the church. And then there's a unique form of love, a divine form of love. 
that supersedes all other loves. It's God's love because God is love. Now, you can't kind of Missy Elliott the theology. You can't flip it and reverse it, right? You can't just say that love is God. That actually would be a form of idolatry. Love is God where we're kind of elevating something, but at his core, at his essence, God is love. Love doesn't define God. God is the one who defines love for us. So we look to him today and we realize that Jesus is our example of love because love has no better example than Jesus. It gives definition and expression throughout the world. So let's begin by looking at Jesus as our example of love. Jesus is our example of love, and then as we learn from him, our loving others gives evidence that we know God. Let's look at 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Love is not like a lot of other subjects, is it? It's not something that you can just simply try to understand and then be practiced. It actually can only be fully understood by practice. I think of the parent who, who is looking at maybe their one child or a parent who is anticipating the birth of a child. We have a number of those in the church right now. And for some, it's their first child, and for others, it's, it's the second or third or fourth child that is going to be born into this family. And, and both of those experience this practical application of love in a, un, in a unique way where they're wondering, what, what room is there for this kind of love in my heart? And, I, and this is not like my example where I'm saying they're like the Grinch in their heart, and their heart needs to grow you know, three sizes larger or whatever else. But there is something amazing that happens in the midst of those moments where your love expands and is able to take on that responsibility, that sacrifice, that delight. Your love grows. And so love is not like other subjects. It has to be practiced. And that's how we come into a fuller and more full understanding of it. But first, John wants us to understand that at the essence of Christian living is love. We're commanded to love one another, and John gives us two reasons that we would do that. One, that love has its source in God himself. He not only defines it, but he is himself its source. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So let's take a look at the first reason. Love has its source in God. It's more than just a description of how you feel. It's more than just a momentary thing. Love is a word that does involve our emotions, but more than that, the biblical concept of agape is a love that is unconditional. A love that seeks the highest good for the one who is the object of that love and a love of total commitment by the one who is extending it. When God loves in the Bible, he does not say, I love you if... He doesn't say, I love you because. There's nothing in us that would cause God to want to love us. We're born sinners. God's love for us doesn't have anything to do with something that has caused God to love us. It's motivated by who he is and not who we are. 
He loves us because it is his nature to love, and he wants us to know him through that love. And so this morning, I don't share these things about who we are as sinful people to be like the bummer Christmas message. I actually want us to rejoice all the more fully by recognizing there is nothing in me, but there is everything in him that would initiate this kind of love. We are exhorted to love as ones who are already loved by God. That's the basis for the command. It's not to say, hey, go love, and if you love enough, I'll love you back. This isn't a circle one yes, no kind of a test of love. This is a test of love in spite of who we are. This is a test of love that finds its source in who God is himself. John's not speaking of our love only as an imitation of what we see in God. That is certainly true. Our love is not just this imitation where we're just trying to say like, well, I'm just going to kind of slap these things on. It'll be this caricature of what I understand of love. It's actually participation with him in his love extended throughout the world. We get to participate from within. It's not just this outward thing that we're trying to just fake it until we make it. Our love is not mere emotion. It's not only gratitude either. Because John's concept of love goes far deeper than that. God wants us to see that God, or John wants us to see that God's love, God's divine love, this agape love, is creative. Now you may think, well, why, why do you say that? Like, I know that God is creator. I know that He made the world. God's love is creative because it produces its likeness in us. We'll see this in just a moment. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It produces its likeness in us. We love from God's fullness and not for it. We love from God's fullness and not because we have to try to achieve something to gain it as favor. Sometimes when we try to do that, what we're actually exposing is that we're trying to quench the thirst of our own emptiness as it relates to love. See, stable, faithful love, love that differs from the fleeting nature of feelings That can only be found in God. Think about it this way. Feelings come to us, but agape, this divine love, comes from us. Feelings are passive. They're also a little bit receptive, right? You can kind of tell when you're on the outs with somebody. But agape, it's active. It's creative. Feelings are instinctive, but agape is intentionally chosen, We fall in love, but we don't fall into agape. See, our our choice to love doesn't come from the weather, digestion, good vibrations, heredity. Whatever the environment is in that moment, the soft lens on the camera. Love doesn't come from those things. The love that we're talking about here is supposed to be at the very center of our being thing that drives us and motivates us. It's supposed to be from our heart. And we can tell the difference, can't we? We experience the difference in a variety of ways. We can, we can pick up on the difference in, when we're receiving love that is kind of coerced and love that is from a motivation deeply felt in our heart. So that's the first reason. Second reason that we are commanded to love one another is that whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. 
The presence of love in your life is the evidence of your experience with Jesus Christ. In other words, we can grow in this. We can grow in love. In the same way that a family kind of grows in love as it, as it expands out across multiple children, we can grow in love as we experience the nearness and the beauty and the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ. So we don't fear looking at the gospel. We don't fear acknowledging that we are needy people. We don't fear looking back because we don't go back there. We recognize We experience the goodness and the love and the grace and the mercy of God all the more. And what does that help us to do? It helps us to experience his love afresh. John doesn't mean that anyone in the world that has the feeling of love for someone else is a Christian. Otherwise, there'd be a lot of marriages that aren't loveless. But I think that we've all seen that. We've all seen the devastating effects of that. No, it's not just someone who's in love in the moment all of a sudden becomes a Christian. John's talking about the relationship between God himself and believers. Now, I've used children a couple of times as an example here, but those who have children here, those who are children here, I feel like that covers everybody. If you have children, they possess your DNA. If you are a child, you possess your parents' DNA. Your children... Or you as a child have your nature. It's been genetically passed on. It is genetically passed on. But here's what John's saying. John's saying that something similar happens to those who have been born of God. His divine love all of a sudden transfers to be a part of our new nature. As those who are children of God. That means that we get to be ones who partake in this nature of love and who participate in this nature of love. So intentional, sacrificial, creative, divine, transforming love. That's a part of our new nature. But this Christmas season we recognize that's the love that takes on the form of a baby in a manger. This is who Emmanuel is. This is who we were singing about just a few moments ago. God of love with us. Next, John's going to remind us that it's God's only or best understood as God's unique Son that is sent. And when we read here in just a moment that it is His only Son, we should understand that there was and there is no one else like Jesus. No one else like His Son. You might begin to hear the words of John 3.16 ringing in your ears as we read this next part of the passage this morning. Jesus is the one who could uniquely mediate this love between the heavenly courts of God, who is love, and the earth that he created. Jesus gives love a rich, unique, and divine definition. Why do I say that? Because love is seen in the atoning death of Jesus. You may think as we go through this passage, why why do you talk about his atoning death? We're supposed to be talking about his coming to earth. Well, there's a reason he came to earth. And so we celebrate God with us. And we marvel at the work that he was sent here to accomplish uniquely. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. "In In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. 
And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now, there's a couple of interesting words that are used in this passage that could maybe use some clarity for us today, and that's, that's these two main words primarily, manifest and propitiation. Now, manifest can be a, a popular word today. We might think of this in terms of some things that you'll see on social media, and, and so all of a sudden in the back of your mind, you might start singing like, Holy Spirit, activate, right? Manifest. I love that some of y'all got that. I know who you are. I've seen it in books too recently, even in business books where they're talking about manifesting your destiny. That sounds like a tremendous responsibility that I'm already not good at. Thanks for taking my money to tell me that. Manifest. It means to try to conjure something up. It means to set your mind to something. To declare and demand from the universe. I don't have that kind of authority. Manifest is misunderstood if we look at it that way in this passage. How about we just go to the simple meaning, like to make visible, to make plain, to make visible in a way that even I can understand it. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was made manifest to us. But I think that's an interesting use of the word when you kind of put it at a juxtaposition with how the world uses it. Why? Because the world wants to put us at the center of conjuring something up in order to experience seeing it happening. I'm grateful I don't have to manifest the love of God. See, that would require my thinking it into existing and then faithfully living up to a place of deserving it from the universe, so to speak. But in Christ, God makes His love so plainly seen and known to us. Why does He do that? Well, He does it for a very specific reason. It's the second word that I want us to make sure that we understand today. Propitiation. Now, there's a word for you. Throw that into the next water cooler conversation or or Zoom if you haven't gone back to the office yet. Throw that in there and just see what kind of inquisitive looks you get. Propitiation. It really just means to make an atoning sacrifice. And there's, I would imagine, a number of reasons it's fallen out of popular use today. Imagine walking into a meeting and saying, sorry I'm late. I know I need to propitiate for that time. See, I think you'd get some inquisitive looks. That means simply this, that we're going to do something in order to gain favor or get back into the good graces of the people that are gathered there. Perhaps you are or perhaps you know someone that comes into the office bearing treats or caffeine to propitiate something like having everyone come in early or stay later. See, that's a, that's a form of propitiation. But what Jesus makes plain, what he manifests, what he makes visible is a propitiation that goes beyond a simple falling out of favor with someone in a way that you or I can make amends for. It's a falling out across the heavens. It's a falling out that I can't overcome because of my sin, that you can't overcome because of your sin, And that really just means this, that you have missed the mark before a heavenly throne. That is the propitiation that we need in Jesus Christ. 
Now perhaps you would wonder, why, why would it be necessary that there be some form of atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins? Why doesn't God just kind of wave it off and forgive everyone's sin? I think it's helpful for us to understand, to put this in kind of human terms, to answer that with another question. If you were watching the news over the weekend, or if you were looking at the headlines across newspapers, why doesn't the state of Florida simply make charges disappear that tend to lead the front, of those, the front page of those newspapers? Or be the lead story on the item news? Why doesn't the state of Florida do that? And you may say, well, that would be an egregious misuse of justice. And the same answer is true across the heavens. It would be a tragic violation of justice. If God were to do that for our sins, if He were to just wave them off with no cost or consequence, it would be the denial of the seriousness of sin. It would be a gross kind of going against the the jealous nature of God and His justice. See, sin is so bad, it leads to this state of affairs that is so corrupted that the Son of God Himself is the only one who can come and be crucified on our behalf. In his Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, Isaac Watts says this. Now, this is, this is a hymn, I, this was interesting this morning, even as we were singing, and I, I heard the, the words of Psalm 98. That's what Joy to the World is based on. Actually, let's just turn over there. If you've got your Bible, just turn over there with me. I think this is just wonderful to see. Not just that we sing Joy to the World and it becomes these words that like are with us from birth, it seems like. But we recognize in God they were initiated toward us before the beginning of time. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. Not an uncommon way to start one of the Psalms. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. That is directed to you and to me today. What is he singing of? The salvation of the Lord. The Lord has made known his salvation. Do you hear manifest? Do you hear joy to the world? The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. We do understand this. This is covenantal language. The house of Israel, that, that's you and me today in the covenant, in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. God's special and chosen people. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of the Lord. This isn't universalism. This is saying that the cross of Christ, this moment in time that we slow down during the year to acknowledge the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ, the arrival of salvation, is a powerful enough message that it goes on without end. To where? To the ends of the earth. How does it tell us to respond? To make a joyful noise to the Lord. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, and with the lyre the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Now we know the lyrics, don't we? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room in heaven and nature. Sing. 
you hear where that's kind of drawn its inspiration from Psalm 98. But I wonder if we consider the oft unsung, or if unsung, maybe not necessarily remembered, verse 4 of that song. He rules the world with truth and grace. And He makes the nations prove, what do we hear here? We hear the justice of the Lord. We hear one who stands mighty as the judge over the throne. And what does He provide in Jesus Christ? He provides salvation to be released from that judgment. Why? Because that Son He sent will receive it on our behalf. The glories of His righteousness. That right standing where we miss the mark, that that place of bringing us back to the morality that God has created us for and called us to, Jesus takes care of that difference. And more than that, He sets us up in a way that we can now live in the good of that. We can both receive the love of the Lord and we can express it to others. The glories of His righteousness and what? Wonders of His love. This divine love. See, the wonders of God's love are kind of, they kind of exist in this universe. The wonders of God's love exist in the universe that He loved us before we loved Him. And He proved His love by sending His Son who is our atoning sacrifice. Just rapid fire, consider these verses from Romans 3, 25. God presented Him, that is Jesus, as a propitiation through faith in His blood to demonstrate His righteousness. All of a sudden, verse 4 of Joy to the World means a little bit more than just Christmas carols that we want to sing once a year. It means a lifestyle of all year long, doesn't it? Celebrating the glories of His righteousness and wonder at His love for us. How about this from Hebrews 2, 17? Therefore, He had to be like His brothers in every way so that He could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. What is a priestly role? It is the mediator between God and man. To do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. What about 1 John 2.2? Earlier in this book itself. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. In other words, the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to re- that there would be salvation for everyone. We must receive this love to receive this salvation. I'm grateful in the coming weeks from our Advent devotional, you'll find a few copies I saw that we still have out on the tables. I noticed that there were uh, magnets, car magnets, and ornaments for you guys as well these are just simple ways that we can say we love you as a church that we're glad that you're here Uh, actually our our social media team kind of made the request can can you guys uh, as you put those ornaments on your on your tree or the magnets on your car i about said that backwards would you just snap a picture we would love to just kind of have the church tagged in those types of things but in our advent devotional which is free back there at the at the table as you walk out I'm grateful for how the next couple of weeks slow down and and work through these themes. And it works through these themes of the love of God in some very specific ways where it comes to Christ's sacrifice as a means to our salvation. 
And we, we're also going to be looking in the weeks ahead at the incarnation and nativity. If you put a car magnet on, please just drive like Jesus. <laughs> just think about the fact that God provides the, sancti- the, the satisfaction for sin himself. Here it is, sin, that missing the mark is a, a complete affront to who he is. And yet he's the one that provides the satisfaction for it. He doesn't just say, do better, be better, live better, manifest. He is himself the satisfaction through Jesus Christ that we might enter in. And that that teaches us something about God and his character. So yes, we're looking at the love of God, but as we're looking at the love of God, we must understand that his character is not in conflict with one another. Aspects of his character aren't in conflict with one another. Sometimes we're conflicted in our character, right? How do you live up to your own standards? Rarely do I. I just hold them over other people. God is not like that. His character is not in conflict with one another. It works in concert together for his glory. And this teaches us something about God, that he personally hates sin. He hates sin. Sin. It puts us as his own creation at enmity with him. It teaches us that sin is serious. It's not something that we should just treat lightly. It teaches us the greatness of God's love that he provided the offering to turn his own wrath away. It teaches us the truth that Christ's death alone is what satisfies the Father. And serves as a substitution for you and for me. It teaches us that God's holiness required satisfaction. He couldn't just wave it off. You know, I'm just going to turn a blind eye in my omnipotence. Holiness required satisfaction. And God's love provided it in Jesus Christ. You may think it seems harsh. But can I just remind you, you need only look to the cross of Christ and the reality of hell to see that God is not messing around with sin. Perhaps you're here today and you think, well, Chris, you you have no idea what I've done. You, You have no idea who I've been to others, that I was supposed to be one who loved. You have no idea the hurt that I've inflicted on others, or you have no idea the hurt that has been perpetuated against me hurts so deep that Jesus' love doesn't seem to be enough. And you're right. I don't know. I barely know the things that I've done and the affront that that is before God. But I also don't see those as conditions for receiving the love of God. Scripture doesn't tell us to be good enough Scripture doesn't tell us to come to a place of repair enough. Don't be broken enough. It doesn't say be emotionally stable or intelligent enough. We're simply told this, we are never enough and He is always enough. And who are we to add conditions to the unconditional divine love of God? I'm not a huge baseball fan. I enjoy playing it, don't enjoy watching it. I think there are greater wastes of time in God's creation, but 
I know some names. I know some names through the years, and Ty Cobb is one of those names that you kind of instantly recognize. He's one of the all-time greats in the game. 367 lifetime batting average. Apparently that's a lot. Doesn't seem like a lot. 4,191 hits and 892 stolen bases. Nine straight batting titles. This professional resume is impressive. He was also known as the meanest man in baseball. Stopped at nothing to win, insult, humiliate, even go so far as to injure other players in his quest for victory. His own teammates one year rooted against him when he was in a tight race for a batting title. What a jerk! Your own teammates turned on you? What a mess! He was known for unprovoked racial slurs. Of his three wives, all of them received verbal and physical abuse. He was constantly involved in fistfights, arguments, tirades against his own teammates, against other players, and against fans that rooted for him. Seems like the definition of hypocrisy, doesn't it? What the world knows of you, and what those closest to you know of you, He would be one who on his deathbed actually had in his possession millions of dollars in stocks, bonds, and cash because he was an early investor. Perhaps you've heard of this company, Coca-Cola. They do a lot of marketing this time of year. I think it would be hard to find a more apt specimen of what we would know in theological terms as total depravity. Immense worldly talent total depravity of character. I think today we'd say this guy is about to be canceled, right? But not long before he died, Ty Cobb was visited by a Presbyterian minister named John Richardson. When he first visited, Cobb, rather curtly, told the preacher he could leave. But two days later, that preacher came back. This time, Cobb listened He listened as Richardson explained to him the plan of salvation. He heard of Christ's love for sinners and how he had come to die even for the likes of Ty Cobb. As he heard, he became overcome with emotion. Not anger this time. A right brokenness. See, Richardson continued to explain the necessity of repentance towards sin and faith in Jesus as the only way to salvation. Cobb told the preacher he was ready to put his complete trust in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And two days before he died, Ty Cobb told Richardson, I feel the strong arms of the Lord underneath me. Why could he say that? Why could he be sure of that? Because in this is love. Not that we have loved But God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, no one has ever sinned themselves beyond the love of God. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he does right now. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than he does right now.
And today, you can receive this gift, this free gift through Jesus Christ, this gift of God's divine love. You may think, I thought I was invited here to hear a nice Christmas message. Hang out with some cool people. Oh, that's sweet. You think we're cool. <laughs> Perhaps you've been invited here for something far greater than those things. Maybe you even just stopped by because it was the closest church as you were driving out to figure out what church to go to today. Maybe that was a loving expression of the divine love offered to you through Jesus Christ. You thought you turned in on a whim. You thought you visited on a whim. But God was actually revealing his love to you that you would be here to be able to receive this as a gift today. In other words, whoever invited you or whoever initiated that you turn your vehicle in here today loved you so much that they wanted to be sure that you heard and knew of this love and the salvation provided for you in Jesus Christ. It is as simple and yet profound as this. Acknowledge your need for a Savior. Believe that Christ's work was accomplished on your behalf and that it alone is enough to save you. Confess your sin before a holy God and receive the mercy provided through his son's sacrifice. If you've never taken that step today, I pray that you would give us the privilege of praying with you shortly. We'll receive communion together in just a few short moments, and if that's you, I hope that you'll receive it for the first time, realizing that it represents Christ's work for you. I can assure you of this. There are many sitting around you right now praying for you because we have all had that moment of awakening to the divine love of God. Lastly and in closing, Jesus empowers love's expression throughout the world because God's love produces genuine change in us. When we respond to God's love, we are able to become loving people. This is why John speaks more than once in his letter about love being perfected in us. I mentioned chapter 2 earlier in chapter 2 verse 5 and chapter 4, verse 12, and in 17, by perfected, John means that God's love has reached its aim. God's love has reached its purpose, and it becomes our purpose and our goal for our lives. You can't command unsaved people to love others. They may or may not do it, but God commands Christians to love. Those who have been born again. And, and, and I think about myself as one who has been born again, I now have the capacity to love others. I may be tempted to act like my old unsaved self, but as a Christian, I recognize I don't have any right to live like an unsaved person. I must live like the Christian that I am. I live in the love of God. Galatians 5 calls us to love this divine love, this agape love, as a fruit or an evidence of the Spirit at work in our lives. And this is the way that we are called to participate in making the love of God manifest to the world around us even today. Perhaps you're here today and the practical application of this is to 
repent of not loving others well. Perhaps you've focused so much on being right with the truth that you've ignored being loving and what the truth should produce in us. I'd invite you to consider that there's a wrong way to be right in the life of the believer. It's a tension that we live in, but it's a tension that God so richly provides and equips us for. You too can repent today of being unloving as an example of the love that you have received through Christ. You can also pray for the power of the Holy Spirit that your friends, your families, your classmates, your coworkers would experience Christ's love firsthand through you so that your witness is strong this year. See, that brings glory to God. That shows that his, the fruit of His divine love is being borne out in our lives as ambassadors of His divine love. Love has no better example than Jesus, giving definition and expression through the world. Before Mike Nash comes up to lead us through communion, I'd like for us to take a moment and reflect on this song. You can stay in your seats. If you don't have communion elements with you, our ushers will begin to make their way about the auditorium. Just simply raise your hand that you might receive some elements that we can receive and participate together. This song sums up the work that Christ accomplished on the cross on our behalf. I trust that reflecting on this, even as you're there in your seat, just taking time to to sit and listen and receive the grace of God yet afresh in your heart and in your mind, thinking about repentance that we are offered because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's going to lead us to rejoicing through receiving of communion, reminding us of the source of the love that we're called to both enjoy and express in this season.